Hey everyone, welcome back to The Human Podcast. Today's episode 12 and I'm speaking to Roman Yampowski. He's a world-class researcher in AI safety and security. This conversation was actually done remotely. I'm hoping that the vast majority will be done in person, but every now and then I may make an exception if they're abroad or something like this. But yeah, I hope you enjoy the conversation either way. And if you do, please hit subscribe if you haven't already and share and like the video if you can. Thanks a lot and enjoy the show. Roman, I believe you were born in the Soviet Union, is that right? That's right. Whereabouts were you born and uh, how long was it before you moved to America? So I was born in Riga, Latvia, which is now a separate country, I guess. Uh, I came here in 1994. What were you like as a child? Were you interested in kind of technology from, a, from an early age? I liked science fiction. I enjoyed reading about future and technology. Any standout sci-fi books or, or films when you were young? I read a lot of Harry Harrison about uh, kind of space criminals and such, hackers. Any particular like programming language that got you first interested in, in computer programming? Not really. Growing up, I only had video game consoles. I didn't have any uh, personal computers until I was older. So you're a bit of a gamer when you're younger? I definitely was very into games, yeah. Favorite game? Sonic. Sonic, yeah, nice. <laughs> okay, cool. So, I mean, one thing I wanted to ask you was, obviously, a lot of your research has been focused on computer security. Did you go for a phase at all when you were younger, hacking or trying to break into different systems to teach yourself? Is that a bit of a rite of passage for people who end up being experts in security? I, I did. I'm not going to get into too many details and advice of my lawyer, but uh, yeah, I definitely enjoyed finding loopholes in other people's projects. Nice. That's cool. Okay. So, I mean, first of all, you did a degree in computer science, I believe, at kind of in New York at Rochester Institute of Technology. I got master's from them and then I got a PhD from University at Buffalo. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So what was your research on at Buffalo Uni? I did uh, work on biometrics, behavioral biometrics, so recognizing people based on their style of interacting with computers, specifically with games. Is that something you're still doing research on these days, biometrics? Uh, not in a long time. Maybe five years ago, I stopped actively working in biometrics. Uh, some of my students still did work on that, but personally, I switched to AI safety full time. Yeah, so when did you first become interested in AI exactly? Uh, probably a few years before I started my PhD, I was definitely interested in um, just pattern recognition at the time, but uh, more and more into advanced capabilities, trying to understand what is possible with artificial intelligence. Was there any period where you were skeptical of the safety issues or were you quite quick to kind of see the dangers? Well, initially I didn't realize there would be any safety issues. I was very optimistic all about benefits of this technology, free labor, curing cancer, you know, good stuff. Uh, it took a while before I actually realized uh, that it could be abused as a tool and, of course, independently be dangerous as well. well. How do you feel about the current state of AI safety research progress at the moment in the world? I mean, we did a great job understanding what the problems are and 
what challenges we are facing, but I don't think there is much progress in actually solving any challenges or problems. I've heard you speak a little bit about like a, like a potential formal proof on whether or not you know the kind of control problem is actually solvable. Right. So in computer science, it's very common to first prove that you can solve a problem. Some problems just don't have solutions and you can show it and then you don't have to waste resources on it. With the control problem, there is a lot of people working on it, but I don't think there is any formal proof uh, suggesting that we might succeed. It's very interesting. So there is some people who claim, yes, definitely we can do it. Others say, well, no, it's too difficult, but maybe theoretically it's possible, but there is not a definitive mathematical or any other logical proof showing that, okay, yeah, that that is something we can do. A lower intelligence can indefinitely control higher intelligence. Is, is that proof something you're working on at the moment still? So I have a few papers published already, which talk about kind of tools and capabilities we would need to succeed at control. And a lot of those tools come from other fields, from mathematics, economics, political science. And for most of them, there are well-known impossibility results already. So if we truly need those capabilities, then yes, that's part of a larger proof showing that it cannot be done. Why do you think that organizations, research centers, etc., uh, are not really focusing at all on the proof and are just diving in to try and solve the issue without, you know, like you say, proving it's actually possible first? It is possible that they tried it, just a very difficult proof to get. So maybe look at another example, P versus NP, right? We don't have a proof of uh, separation of those two classes, but there is so much work on trying to get approximate solutions, trying to still uh, get benefits from algorithms, even if we cannot establish that they could be efficient. So it may be just a consequence of difficulty. Okay, I want to go back to your, your story a minute. So when you're doing your PhD at Buffalo, do you remember kind of what the, the mood was around AI at the time, what people thought about, you know, future possibilities, future risks? What was, what was the thinking like then? Yeah, so it was a very kind of standard engineering department. They cared about increasing capability, higher accuracy rates. There was very little philosophical debate, at least in the research group I was in about, uh, you know, AGI, superintelligence, anything like that. And at the time, it was pretty much science fiction almost everywhere. It took another maybe five years to start seeing top universities have research labs dedicated to AI safety, popular books coming out on the topic. So at the time, it was not something people in academia usually worked on. Okay, and then after your PhD at Buffalo, is that when you moved to UCL or you, did you go somewhere in between those places? Oh, that was just a summer kind of postdoc situation before I moved to Louisville. Yeah. Okay, so you're a professor at Louisville now. Are you still head of the cybersecurity lab there? Uh, yes, yes, I still direct cybersecurity lab. Okay, and so do you split your time between research on AI and cybersecurity or is it kind of all meshed together now at the moment? It's a hybrid, but mostly my students work on very vanilla cybersecurity work and I do mostly safety work. Can you say a little bit more about what your kind of research has been in the last couple of years, what you've got planned for the future? So I'm still working on different parts of that uh, impossibility result, uh, proof of uh, our maybe inability to control superintelligence. So I'm looking at different results related to 
our ability to predict decisions of such systems, explain them, monitor such systems while they learn, while they are deployed. So a lot of this kind of fundamental theoretical results. Do you collaborate with many people in these papers or is it purely quite kind of individual work? I try to collaborate with scholars from other universities. Uh, I also do some work myself, so it's kind of makes maybe 50-50 sole papers and others uh, collaborations with students from other universities and scholars at other places. Did you visit as a fellow to uh, Miri at one point? I was a fellow of Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence, which later became MIRI, and then I was fellow again, summer fellow with them. What was the like environment like working and collaborating with people there? Uh, the first visit was very, I would say, unstructured. They were still kind of very young organization trying to just figure out what they're doing, but it was the time that I kind of understood the scope of a problem and started working on it. Second time was much more organized and streamlined. There was a lot of other fellows, so uh, definitely improvement in terms of uh, logistics and such. Uh, very smart people working on most interesting problems. Did you work with Elias Yukowski much when you were there? Uh, he usually works very independently from what I can tell. Uh, so we encountered each other, but I don't think we directly collaborated at any point. Is there a reason that you choose to like stay in academia as opposed to work for a company or work for like a research organization like them? Do you prefer academia for any particular reasons? It, it is a lot of uh, academic freedom. It's probably the last place where you can truly work on whatever you think is important. Industry used to give you some time, maybe one day a week to do that. I don't think they do that anymore. Any type of organization, they still have their own goals and agenda, whereas as tenured professor, you can really pick your battles. Okay, so um, just to talk about some of like your interests, so I mean, clearly you're, you're very deep in the AI world. I mean, why is it that you, you work there? Is it the responsibility of, um, you know, the work you think that needs to be done given the risks? Is it just that you're interested in it? I guess it's a combination of both, but yeah, why do you think you've ended up where you are? I think it's the most important problem we are facing. If we are successful at creating well-controlled, well-aligned superintelligence that would solve all the other problems. It will help us with science, with uh, age extension, life extension, with uh, curing diseases, climate change, any other existential risk would be much easier if we had this godlike uh, tool to help us. Yeah, I completely agree. Why do you think that so many people um... You know, maybe you know, so many people in mathematics, computer science, whatever, are not working on this ultimate kind of problem of them all, and they're you know working in fields elsewhere. Any idea why are they just not maybe understanding that this this is going on, or they're not interested? Any thoughts on that? I think it's a more general problem. If you ask people in any field, doesn't matter chemistry, English, whatever, uh, are you working on the most important problem in your field? Majority will say no, and. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe they look for something where they can make more progress quickly. Maybe they have better funding luck with other problems. It's not obvious, but uh, it's a common situation where if you ask someone, what's the most important problem in your field? They'll tell you X, Y, Z. And if you ask them, are you working on it? They'll say no. So. 
If you want to work on this, are there any kind of existential risk areas that you think are most pressing and that you'd work on instead? You know, maybe it's not even an area to do with technology, for example. Well, I mean, climate change, obviously, to some extent could be solved with technology. But yeah, are there any major pressing problems you'd rank just below, you know, this one? I think synthetic biology and genetic engineering would be the other thing I would work on if I had background in biology, not in computer science. You know, I mean, you spend so much time thinking about this stuff, working about it. Does it does it affect how you live at all in your personal life, in your free time, given that you have you know knowledge of uh, some you know the kind of scary stuff that could happen down the line? Does that affect you at all outside of work? Not really. I can't say I'm sad or depressed over it. It's not really interacting with my normal life. Work and home life are pretty separate. Okay, okay. So you keep them separate. So you don't, are you thinking about um, issues like all the time because you're so interested in them outside of work? Um, or are you pretty good at separating things and you like to have a break? I still read uh, outside of work hours. I talk to my kids about those big philosophical issues. They actually come up with some interesting solutions for, for their grade level. So in that regard, yeah, it stays with me, but uh, it doesn't impact me in terms of kind of depressing everything I do. Yeah, that was cool to hear. So your kids sometimes can suggest interesting solutions to your, um, to your questions. Surprisingly, they don't have any background, so they are not constrained by kind of the standards of the field or societal expectations. So they, they do come up with at least non-trivial answers, maybe also not workable, but uh, at least interesting. Have you got any examples at all? I'm just, this is, uh, sounds really interesting. Anything you can remember they've given you some cool like, insight into lately? Uh, a lot of it is like if you ask non-experts in the field what we should do, you would get very similar set of solutions. So how do you control AI? Okay, uh, keep it locked in a box of some kind, uh, you know, tell it to be nice to people, all this very like simplistic, trivial approaches, which uh, initially you don't fully realize why they will not work. But uh, pretty good uh, first attempts for a five-year-old or eight-year-old. That's cool. Have, have your children become you know interested in AI and and and, and stuff because of because of you? Um, I I hope they will have some interest in that field. Uh, interestingly, I have a lot of faculty friends who maybe even married to other faculty, but their children almost never follow in the same discipline. They still do really well. They go to college, they get their PhDs, but it's usually in something else. So I don't know if it's actually kind of scares them away from computer science. Interesting, okay. And you said about reading a minute ago. So yeah, like outside of the, the, your, uh, the stuff you read on for your work, any particular like areas of science or just any of the random things that you enjoy reading in your spare time? I like reading research papers connected to anything intelligence related, uh, biology, again, genetic engineering type of stuff. So all of it is uh, pretty much the same thing at the highest levels. You're talking about software, you're talking about control, you're talking about measuring it, uh, recreating some of the more complex systems. So a lot of it is uh, at PhD level work is pretty much the same project. How do you go about finding what to read? Do you just see um, see where your interest takes you? Or are you quite organized with your reading and do you plan things out in advance, where to go next? And 
So as I go through my daily work, I encounter books, papers, I add them to the list of books and papers I want to read, and that list keeps growing exponentially, and it gets resorted, and priorities change, and I'm sure 99% of papers in that list will never be read, but somehow some papers make it to the top of the list, and uh, that's where we are. I try to, at least for people who I consider most interesting smartest in the world to read everything they write it's not always possible they tend to be overly prolific but uh, that is one heuristic i try to use if someone i really follow has a new article that would probably go to the top of the list anyone interesting that you're reading lately uh, so there is always uh, kind of good articles from people working in safety field. Eliezer Yudkovsky always has interesting things to say, so I try to stay on top of his posts. Uh, Nick Bostrom is another very interesting philosopher. I try to read anything he publishes, but again, both of them are very prolific, so it's a challenge. So who are some people that have like kind of influenced you and you like to read? You said Yudkovsky and Bostrom. Who else out there writing about AI safety and AI in general? Do you like to do you like to read? There is probably too many to name. I don't want to leave anyone out and make them feel bad. But this would be two kind of canonical examples where I definitely try to uh, prioritize their writing. Historically, it's always been very good. Sure. Okay. So, what's like a typical, if there is one, week for you, like um, with your work at uni and and outside? Is a is a typical week? So typically I teach, uh, that usually takes about half the time. So you prepare for your lectures, you deliver lectures, you answer a million emails from a hundred students. Uh, that takes half a week. And then the second half is where you get to read, write, work with your research students and kind of interact with other scholars, maybe visit a conference or two. Do you enjoy teaching? I love it, especially if it's um, a course where students are advanced enough to do interesting work. So I teach a course in artificial intelligence, which is a graduate course, and it's always very pleasant to see students go from really not knowing much about AI to producing pretty reasonable projects, uh, interesting work. That's cool. Is there anything interesting you're working on with your PhD students, research students at the moment? Uh, there is some, again, as I said, it's not safety related. There is some interesting work on um, stylometry and trying to profile text in terms of what properties we can extract from text samples. So you can, if you have a text sample from someone, estimate their maybe background, education, gender. We're trying to extend it to other properties such as intelligence. Have you got have you developed particular ways of thinking that you think help you in this field or well for both cybersecurity and AI safety you need to be kind of paranoid a little about uh, you know loopholes and mistakes and being able to have a security mindset where you immediately see problems in every engineering approach you see how it can be hacked broken how it can go wrong if different type of data is supplied or something like that. Before I forget, one thing I wanted to ask you was, I, I saw, I was on your Twitter, I, th I believe in your cover photo on your Twitter, are you sitting in between Elon Musk and Demis Asabis? Uh, I think I was at a conference where I had some good comrades, yes.
Yeah, there's a few uh, few cool characters around you there. So was that where was that? Was that that Future of Life conference in? Yeah, that was uh, a Silamar Future of Life conference. A very very good event. Yes. Are you planning to do another one soon? Is there any anyone planned by? Uh, they had one last week. I just got back. It wasn't as uh, general. It's more for AI safety experts, not just uh, you know everyone in AI. But uh, yeah. Yeah, awesome. So did you, any interesting insights from your chat with, uh, I mean, you sat next to Elon, I'm just intrigued. Did you speak to him much then or throughout the conference? I can't say we got into anything too deep. He was at the time talking about hardware he was buying for his uh, Tesla's and computational capabilities of those new processors. Just discussed that a little. Cool. Um, any other conversations you have with anyone else in the photo? I mean, I saw some lots of interesting people. Sam Harris. So usually there. those events they follow kind of Chetnam House rules. You are not supposed to say what everyone else said uh, specifically. I definitely learned a lot from uh, attending and happy about uh, participating, but uh, no kind of specific insights to report. Okay. Sure. Sure. Um, do you think that? I mean, that was obviously a cool event in that so many people from different companies and uh, research centers stuff came together. Do you think there'll be more of those in the future or after a few of those kind of events, do you think that um, now people have got maybe a bit of the picture of what's going on, there'll be less of them? No, no, there is uh, growth in the field for sure. There are annual events and most major conferences have workshops dedicated to safety. So definitely there is more opportunities to publish, to network. Uh, the field is growing tremendously. Almost every top university now has an AI safety group. Outside of AI safety, like, is there anything in, in just kind of purely AI that you're, that you're really interested in? And, you know, like, is, is a big question to be answered or are you kind of pretty focused on the safety and security? So there is a lot of uh, philosophical kind of discussions about what general implies, right? So humans are considered general intelligence, but there is a lot we don't understand, don't know how to do, which uh, machines are somewhat capable in. I have a theory that there is, in fact, like this uh, dark matter of intelligence capabilities. Most, most features, most capabilities are not something we even know about or understand, but AI would be able to unlock and trying to understand what those things are and how they work, maybe really a paradigm shift for science, for understanding, for engineering. So I'm very interested in differences between human intelligence and what we're starting to see those uh, uh, latest uh, AIs are capable of doing. What was the analogy you used a second ago you said about dark? Do you say about dark matter or energy? Right, so in physics, uh, majority of matter, majority of physics is something we don't know what it is. It seems to be there, but uh, we don't really have any clue how to explore it properly. If you look at all the different problem types and knowledge, there is something humans are very good at, uh, subdomains of uh, competence for, for humans. Animals have slightly different subdomains. They can do things we cannot. But I suspect that if you look at the whole universe of possible competences, we have like a tiny corner, but the rest of it is dark matter for us. We don't understand what it is. We don't know how to do it. And we're starting to see glimpses of it where AI uh, looks at data we see, but is able to determine facts out of it, which we have no idea how it does that. Sure, sure. Yeah, because I've seen some of your work on you know, this idea of the space of possible minds. We're in a very small corner. 
of the total space, how much do you think that um, you know digital intelligence AI could occupy? Is that much larger than human, or is that still a very small kind of subset of the total space? There's other kinds of intelligence that will go beyond digital intelligence. So I suspect there is overall infinity of possible problems and domains, and I think uh, AI can also be infinite in its uh, scope of capabilities, but maybe a smaller type of infinity, a subset of a bigger one. So I don't think it would be completely universal intelligence, but definitely a bigger, bigger circle than what humans are capable of comprehending. Do you think that there's some, you know, possibilities for minds out there? So there's, there's, there's some things that we can imagine that we can't do, that we can at least imagine other machines can do, you know, high level of intelligence, certain emotions. But do you think there's completely new things out there that we're not even capable of imagining that other things can do? Absolutely. The unknown unknowns is the concerning category because there are obviously by definition things, if you don't know what they are, if you cannot even imagine them, you cannot prepare for them, you cannot... Uh, kind of anticipate what to do in such situations. So definitely, I think that's that's going to be a big part of it. Yeah. So a second ago, when, when I asked you what you know is an interesting question, is this what you meant when you said we don't know exactly what general intelligence is in the sense that we don't know all the different kinds of like, we don't know how far a, a truly in general intelligence would actually be in terms of all the different things it can do. And human is just actually a narrow. It's kind of like a narrow general intelligence. Right. We are a subset in the domain of human expertise. So I do suspect that we'll be amazed at what a truly generally intelligent system is capable of. Okay. Any other you know, big questions that interest you apart from, from that? I'm interested in many things. Doesn't mean I work on them. I'm definitely very interested in what uh, genetic reengineering can allow us to do. Can we enhance humans? Can we have longer lives? Can we be healthy? All that is incredibly fascinating, but I don't work on any of that. Can you say a little bit about your thoughts on AI and consciousness? Any particular views you hold there? Any kind of interesting, any ways you think AI will help us to understand more about consciousness? Any thoughts there? Right. So I think consciousness is a property of your hardware and software. So kind of like uniqueness of your design and mistakes which are produced as you perceive the world. And if you take it as such, then our AI systems also have some rudimentary consciousness. There are certain ways they perceive colors, dimensions, and when we start looking at how artificial neural networks perceive the world, we kind of get a glimpse of that. So we have those deep dreams. You can see kind of weird stuff, hallucinogenic, uh, maybe perceptions humans sometimes have. And I think eventually we'll get there where it's not only super intelligent, but it's super conscious. It has more uh, perception of the world, more internal experiences, and maybe even multiple threads of that uh, consciousness stream. Are you convinced at all that any you know, machine learning models, any AI systems around the world at the moment are in any way close to you know, possessing some very small level of consciousness, or do you think we're a long way from, from, from that? So I think it's a spectrum. I don't think it's binary. I think everything has some level of consciousness from bacteria to plants. And uh, under that definition, yeah, modern systems do have some rudimentary consciousness. It's nothing like humans or even animals, but they're starting to have something. If it, I've got a question about this idea that it's, um, it's not binary. So 
if you if you kept going down and down and down and down, I mean, then there wouldn't be a point where it was so unbelievably low that just before that there would be no consciousness at all. You think that there always has to be at least some some small amount. I don't understand why it couldn't be binary, but also be on a massive scale. Um, but at the same time, you could just drop off that, and there would be you know something that well nothing that is, is like to be something. No, I think dead matter has no consciousness. You have to have some sort of processing computation going on to have rudimentary levels. So there is definitely zero consciousness out there. I understand. So you're just you're saying it's not binary in the sense that it's as, maybe as much as a human or not at all. It's more like temperature, right? You have zero, then you get warmer. I don't know if it goes a negative direction, like uh, absolute zero or anything like that. But uh, you definitely can have more or less conscious awareness. Okay. Okay. Any um, any thoughts on? I'm sorry if uh, I've, I've maybe yourself. I've heard speak about this before, but it's like kind of test for artificial consciousness. So I have a paper where I propose uh, using optical illusions and other types of illusions to kind of detect human-like consciousness states. Uh, if I give you a novel optical illusion, something you cannot Google, something you have never experienced before and you in fact experience it and you can answer questions about it. Okay, I see circles rotating right. I see, you know, something else happening. The only way you can get this information is if you experience this illusion. And that's evidence to me that you have those internal states. So if AI systems, and we're starting to see it, if AI systems are capable of uh, experiencing some illusions and describe them, then to me that's evidence that they do have similar internal experiences have you seen uh you know people building ai technical people not necessarily just philosophers ever you know kind of trying to implement this this test or or anything like this do you think this will happen or do you think that um this is just kind of more philosophical speculation that people won't won't take seriously Uh, i'm sure eventually somebody will try running similar tests i don't think it's been done so far because uh, the systems are not that advanced yet to connect uh, fully virtual perception of images with uh, linguistic descriptions, but uh, maybe we're getting there. Maybe modern large language models, especially the ones now also doing image generation like uh, Gato, uh, maybe it's a great test to try with them. Uh, I would love to see someone do it. Sure, sure. Yeah, speaking of like large language models, what do you what do you make of um what do you make of Dali 2 and uh, all the stuff there that came out a month ago? I'm very impressed by anyone who can do art. I can't. So to me, that's the definition of art. If I can do it, it's not art. So yeah, I think it's uh, definitely incredibly amazing and creative. Uh, I don't know how general it is. People who kind of give it adversarial inputs uh, suggest that it doesn't fully understand the language and kind of generates statistically likely outputs, but uh, I'm still very impressed. Do you follow Gary Marcus and his kind of commentary on the the state of AI in the world? Sure, it's very important to have people who are kind of skeptical and, you know, keep everyone honest. He makes excellent points about limitations of those systems, but uh, I'm curious uh, how well his predictions, his latest predictions about what is, is, is not going to be possible by 2030 will stand the test of time. Sure. Yeah, it's good. It's good to follow him because, um, as you say, he's always pointing out, you know, different ways of thinking about things. Is there anyone else who stands out as like a major person that I could 
maybe follow like him or is he seems to you know, really be known as the person always pushing back on things are you aware of anyone else like this uh, there is a lot of skeptics so skeptics are not difficult to find i have a paper about uh, ai risk skepticism where all i do is survey people who are skeptical in their arguments for why Superintelligence is not a problem, it's not dangerous, it's not a safety issue, it's not going to happen and we're going to control it. So if you're interested in that, take a look. It's a large survey paper, hundreds of citations, yeah. Okay, awesome. I'll check that out. Um, yeah, talking about Gary's like, idea on, on, on timelines and stuff, I mean, if, like, obviously I have to ask you. Um, I mean, I've, I had, I think, a recent podcast of yours where you talked about how you're, you'd updated slightly your your kind of you know view of when you think AGI could come around based on recent successes. What would you, what what kind of credence would you give to certain dates at the moment? So again, it's very difficult to be precise with those numbers. We don't know. First of all, we are kind of assuming constant dollars. If somebody thinks that we are very close and putting, you know, fifty billion dollars into training a model, will get you to AGI. Maybe it can happen years sooner. So I think it's more of a problem of how much you are willing to spend to get there, not how much time it takes. So it may take 1.4 trillion today, it may take, you know, 500 billion in a year and so on. And maybe in five years, it's a very reasonable investment to get to that level of production, free labor, cognitive capability. So uh, I wouldn't want to make specific time predictions. On the other hand, kind of doing some self-analysis, I remember then uh, IBM Watson uh, one at Jeopardy. I remember when Alpha Fold, Alpha Go happened, and every time I was very, very concerned, thinking it's a major breakthrough, but kind of nothing in my life changed after that. So I'm wondering if those latest breakthroughs, likewise, will be just another historical point, but not really a paradigm shift. Maybe in five years, I'll look back and go, Gata was uh, as important as IBM Watson. Sure. Yeah. With a uh, in, re- in retrospect, maybe um, any anything else apart from Dolly two that's really impressed you in the last year, let's say, with with AI progress. It's impressive how many different companies are now able to contribute at this high level. It's not just one or two players. There is really a lot of groups, a lot of researchers, and it, it seems like the moment one does it, the next week or same week, many others are at the same level. So it looks like it's a continuous, predictable progress, not just kind of surprising discovery. Apart from like OpenAI and, and let's say DeepMind as well, yeah, was there any organizations you'd point to to say that you know they're also coming out with, with great successes? Like you say, there's, there's more and more companies now. There are some startups in AI space. Again, I don't want to name specific ones, not to omit anyone, but uh, yeah, I think there is at least a dozen now of different research groups which are doing cutting-edge work in this space. So I noticed all those robots on your, your, your shelf behind you. I suppose I'd ask, I wanted to ask as well, yeah, what do you think about the, the state of, uh, you know, kind of hardware robotics in the, in the world at the moment? What do you think of Boston Dynamics and uh, you know, any other companies that interest you? So they seem to be getting close to human-level bodies, right? Uh, maybe not in small detail, uh, digital dexterity, but overall kind of looking humanoid and being able to pick up and manipulate the world. So uh, it's only a question of time before one of those advanced AIs is placed in a humanoid body and will kind of start this process of uh, ongoing learning and maybe app store for robots where everyone can submit a 
feature functionality. This this is an app to play chess. This is to do laundry, and very quickly we'll have you know those homemade, uh, not homemade, uh, home home robots uh, with uh, thousands of capabilities. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah. So you th so the the two in combination will be able to help each other. I'm just wondering about when um, you know with the progress of AI, progress of robotics. Yeah. How how they're going to come together. You know how much they help each other when when you think if there'll be a kind of important moment when you know you've achieved a certain level of success in ai when you think it will now be more useful to bring the body in have you just got any more thoughts on the kind of how these two will work together so a lot of training is done in virtual worlds simulations of the world simulation of a robot body so you are fully pre-trained offline and then you can deploy online so that's i think how the two will connect and work together. I wanted to ask you about uh, Neuralink as well, uh, Elon's company, because I, th I heard you say in a podcast about how you see that maybe the future of you know, AGI or something and how you know, we would be like a kind of unnecessary add-on given our you know, lower intelligence, super intelligence, I should say, uh, as opposed to humans. So is something like Neuralink some kind of a good example of of something you're thinking, you know, emerging human and digital intelligence, but if one is greatly superior, you think, what's the need of the, the kind of combination? Right, so that's kind of the conclusion of this hybrid solution. People say we can just merge with our technology and then everything is fine, we are safe, but as the technology improves, it's not obvious what the human component, the biological part will contribute. It will eventually become a bottleneck, just slowing down the system and it will be either explicitly or implicitly removed from any participation. Would the body not ever provide it? Could the body ever provide it with opportunities that, it, that the, the AI wouldn't have there if the body wasn't there or, or not because you think that well it could just always be simulated, you don't need a, a real quote-unquote body? So first, I think it probably can be simulated if you have pretty good model. And second, it's not obvious that those properties are desirable by superintelligence. You may enjoy them, but it doesn't mean they're universally desirable. Okay. Okay, so we talked about AI and robotics and Neuralink. Yeah, is there any other technology around the world that's ex exciting you um, at the moment? Like you know, something maybe completely different that you've read about or you think will have a massive impact? Just your thoughts on anything else? If quantum computers make good progress in the near term, that would be exciting. Should be an opportunity for new learning algorithms for novel cryptographic protocols. But again, it's not. Sorry, it's not something I'm particularly active in. So, just a couple of final questions. So, yeah, would you give what advice would you give as someone looking to get into AI and then maybe more specifically AI safety? If they want to kind of learn about it and maybe even forge a career in there? It really depends on your background. If you have uh, good uh, mathematical capabilities, uh, college is a good, easy way to get to top research labs, work with good people. Usually you can get an internship with a corporation of your preference. So there are well-established pathways. Some people skip steps, uh, never go to college, just start a company. Depends on your capabilities, comfort level, background. I should have asked actually earlier about, because you've got a few books out. One of them is a kind of kind of collection of, of essays on, on AI safety and stuff. Can you say a little bit about that that work? There it is in the in the background. Yeah. 
Uh, that's an edited book, uh, lots of chapters by uh, either big established names and kind of philosophical problems with uh, AI safety. And the second part is technical solutions from young upcoming researchers kind of addressing some of those problems. Awesome. Okay. And you've got a book on the right as well, which is not necessarily about safety. It's a kind of, I guess, a general overview of, of, of lots of different things in, in AI. It is an altered book, so it's just by me, and it is about safety, but it's an older book now. It's about uh, 2015 release, so some of those ideas are no longer the hardest cutting-edge ideas, but uh, definitely some good background. Awesome. Have you got plans to write any further books soon or in the in the distant future? I'm hoping. Uh, I'm on a sabbatical uh, this upcoming year, so I'm hoping to have another book out. Awesome. Any spoilers or last, last, last secret? Uh, it will be about all those impossibility results I've been investigating, unexplainability and predictability and controllability of AI. Any other plans for that um, sabbatical, just catching up and, and doing some writing? Just catching up and reading lists, research, uh, hopefully making some progress and solving our safety problems. Sure. Roman, thank you so much for speaking. It was awesome to chat a bit about your life, but then also get into all of the, uh, the other interesting stuff. So. Thank you for inviting me. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoyed the Human Podcast, please consider subscribing. I hope to see you soon.